Good morning. Welcome to Wake the F Up on 101.5 UMFM. We air on Thursdays, 11 to 11.30. The UMFM 101.5 broadcasts at 1200 watts from the University of Manitoba, located on Treaty 1 territory, the original lands of the Anishinaabeg, Nihaiwak, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. My name is Christina. I use pronouns she, her. Tasha Kiwawao, Jack Ndishnakashun, Buju Ndinoi Mganaluk, Jack Ndishnakaz. Hi, my name's Jack, and my pronouns are he, him. Kran's not here today. He's probably too busy being a nomad. And on that note, we have a very interesting topic for you today. We're, we're going to talk about nomadism. There's a lot of directions we could go with this. But Jack, do you want to start us off? So in Anishinaabe history, before colonization, most of us in this region, you know, we were woodlands people. Some of us were becoming plains people. And we definitely had nomadic type lifestyles. It was very, it was very cyclical the year, kind of like the way we think and about everything in our lives. It all goes in a circle or in a cycle. And in the summers, you know, I think I mentioned last time I was here, we would often convene in larger groups, which is common. And we would celebrate, see our relatives. We would trade, party, court, marry, have ceremonies, which is a huge thing. And then in the winters, we'd often kind of go into our hunting bands, into smaller groups, our clans, our families. So that way there are less people to feed and you can sustain yourselves more easily. In the fall, for Ojibwe people, we're always wild racing, especially out here near the Great Lakes and in what is now currently called northern Minnesota, southern Manitoba, Ontario, it's super important because wild rice, what we call manumen, is our most sacred food. And it's the entire reason why we moved out here, because originally we came from the east. Our migration story comes with the story of a flood and of following prophecy about going to where the food grows on the water. And that is wild rice. And it has sustained us for thousands of years. And it's an incredibly healthy and delicious food. And it has extremely important ceremonial value. It's very sacrosanct. It's it's our everything. And wild rice is very much under threat right now because of environmental racism, because of pipelines and such. And so the White Earth Nation, I believe, which is an Ojibwe tribal nation in northern Minnesota, just granted non-human personhood to wild rice. 
Wow. Uh, yeah. Nice. It's similar to how some indigenous communities have granted non-human personhood to their rivers, to their waters. But yeah, nomadism is definitely very important. I think that's one of the reasons why being made to live on a reservation for some people might be difficult on a deeper level than just not being able to or just being kind of isolated or something like that because you're not used to having to stay put. You know, you come from a culture, a society where everything in your life, you're constantly moving. You know, uh, mm-hmm. there's this great saying by, I want to say a fox or Meskwaki man back in the 17 or 1800s who was very confused, you could say, at the fact that Europeans or white settlers were building homes of brick and stone and mortar because he really relished the fact that he could, quote unquote, like pick up his wigwam and take it with him wherever or just leave it and, you know, start a new home wherever he wanted. And then the next day, if he wanted, he could wake up next to a waterfall and that could be his view in the morning. And that kind of mentality, like it's a sense of freedom that you don't get when you're attached to a house, to a mortgage, to a cement foundation. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Like I would say you probably know that feeling pretty well. (laughs) Like, so where are all the the places you've lived again? (laughs) So I was born and raised in South Dallas. When I was 18, I lived in Brasov briefly, which is in uh, central Romania in southeastern Transylvania. And then I moved to Paris and kind of bounced back between Paris and Bucharest, which is in southern Romania. And then I was there for about three and a half, four years. And then I moved to Minneapolis for a year and a half. And then I most recently moved here a year and a half ago to Winnipeg. I really like how you described sort of that deeper need to sort of keep on moving, Mm -hmm. to sort of keep on experiencing change. That's really interesting to me because for the first time this summer, I sort of like I've lived in Winnipeg for my whole life, aside from moving here from Ukraine when I was one year old. So I don't remember any of that. Like I've been extremely stationary in Winnipeg here for my whole life. But this summer when I went to B.C., it was my first time kind of going elsewhere. And not only was that my first sort of uh, brush with what nomadism might kind of feel like. I also encountered a lot, a lot of people out there who were living similarly. Like there's a ton of people out there who like to live in their vans and just like chase the sun throughout the year and do seasonal work. Yeah, I met a lot of people like that in uh, Paris, especially because it's such a huge international city. Mm. And it's also, it has this huge reputation of being an international city. So people come there from everywhere and you meet a lot of people who are there for studies or for jobs who just want to be there for a year, two years, three years, and they're constantly coming and going. It's kind of different in other cities where people tend to be more stationary. They tend to be people who are born there, raised there, things like that, or people Mm -hmm. who are planning on making it their permanent home. Whereas in Paris, people are passing through all the time. Yeah. Uh, And because of that, you develop good social skills, good friend-making skills, and you become friends quick, and then you make new friends, then you have to make new friends. Because people are, you make awesome friends, but, you know, they're only there for a semester or a year, and then... Yeah, interesting. Do people live in their vehicles there too? (laughs) I'm asking for my own curiosity. You know, a lot of people go to like music festivals around the country, you know, and vans and stuff like that. But Mm -hmm. most people in Paris, unless you have the money, you don't really have a car because everyone takes the metro and Mm. uh, the le metro, je dirais. Right. And and the bus and things like that. Or, you know, Paris is very walkable too. And there's nothing nicer than just walking around your neighborhood on a spring or summer day with your iPod and just or your iPhone that I'm giving away my age. But, uh, <laughs> I'm 26. But uh, and then like getting your baguettes and just like heading to the river to meet with your friends and cracking open a bottle of rosé. And yeah, it's just like it's a definitely a, a different piece of life. Like it's a big city, but they know how to wind down, how to relax and slow things down. And they're always on vacation. And I miss that. <laughs> oh, my God. That sounds like a dream come true. <laughs> yeah, Winnipeg is smaller, but it feels like 
more hustle and bustle and I constantly feel stressed here. Yeah, you're not the first person that I've encountered that's described it that way. I know that's my experience for sure. And that was that that was another thing that I experienced again when I went like most of my summer was in Nelson, BC. Mm-hmm. It is very chill there and it's very yeah. kind of small town and everyone knows each other. Mm-hmm. Very just kind of slow paced. People are walking down the street. You're saying hi. You're grabbing coffee together. Like, yeah, I think I don't know what it is about Winnipeg. Maybe we're all, we're all just too busy running from the cold. Yeah, that's <laughs> got to be it. I don't know. And this is something I've noticed a lot, like in Romania and even in France, people are very focused on their neighborhoods and have a lot of neighborhood pride. And there's also this, you know, tradition of just making sure your neighbors are okay and the people in your life are okay and chatting with them, getting coffee and tea and such or bringing them little gifts or making visits every day practically. Like yes. in Romania, there's this great expression that I love. It's like, stai de vorba. It means stay and talk, stay and chat. And in Romania, you see elders and youth and everyone just talking in the streets, in the suburbs or in the middle of the city, whatever. You know, you see someone you know, you stay and you talk for like, what could be five minutes or an hour or two hours and then it turns into oh we'll just come over we'll have dinner and people are just standing around with like a jar of honey in their hands or flowers mm-hmm. and they're taking gifts to their neighbors and to their loved ones and there's just such a humanity in that and i just feel like i don't see that very often here no like it's I, a very old world i feel i i think so yeah i from i've heard stories time and time again that North America is very strange in that we don't know our neighbors. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's I, not the little village or even like city in Romania. Yeah. Fascinating. In the realm of nomadism and maintaining interconnectedness with one's own community and people, uh, what have your experiences with that been like? Yeah. So to go to my mom's side, which is the indigenous side, the Anishinaabe, Machif, Metis side, that side of the family has been two things that have undoubtedly been passed down to me. That is multilingualism. They were pretty much all multilingual interpreters, translators, and such guides. Nomadism, or this need to just constantly travel. It's like, I really think it's just ingrained in me. It's like my blood memory, or what we say often DNA memory, things like that. And I think there's more research coming out about this, which is quite interesting, because people often talk about intergenerational trauma and how it's possible that it could be woven into our DNA over a certain amount of generations. Yeah, abs- absolutely it it's can really that's epigenetics yeah oh, we're learning okay. about this in my neuropsych class and absolutely it yeah. affects it it turns on and off the markers in your dna yeah that's just absolutely fascinating if you could inherit trauma from your ancestors having experienced traumatic events consistently over a long period of time then why not also be able to inherit like traveling or the need to constantly move beyond the move just because that's your way of life you travel you yeah gather like foods. the way of living yeah the yeah. earth provides everything for you you have to put in a lot of work but for anishinaabeg you know we had the minopamatas when life was good you know you had your values your culture your family and everything was there the berries the deer the moose the fish the wild rice as long as you had that the maple syrup you know you're you're good the earth provides for you I think there's a lot that any person, because any person can investigate what kind of connections they might have had to their ancestors or their past family. And it's every person has the opportunity to kind of make this sort of discovery about themselves. For myself in particular, like we moved here from Ukraine, but my parents were pretty like acultural. I don't know. They like to deny that we were Russian and Ukrainian and all of this. I, I know very little about my culture, but I still found it extremely fascinating in this one particular instance. Like... 
you sort of, you know, you go about mm-hmm. and you meet people and you see things that people are good at. And I don't know, for example, throughout like the last year, like I was in jujitsu classes and there were people in that class who had been really? doing it since they were like three years old. <laughs> And I was just in so much admiration of that. And like, they're just like, this is, you know, everyone in our family does this. And I'm like, I always wondered, I was just like, what, what in the world is the thing in my family that we're just like good at? So I was, that was just kind of an unanswered question for a little bit. Mm -hmm. Now, fast forward to, to the summer when I went out to BC to do forestry work, I had zero experience with a whole lot of manual labor or doing any kind of work in the forest. But for some reason, I just kind of had this like unfounded confidence in it. And I was just like, oh yeah, I think I'm going to be pretty good at this so i go out there and i go and i start tree planting in lumpy bc in the north okanagan and it just so happened that the place that i was starting actually had coastal level ground and if you're a tree planter and you're hearing this story yes it is unheard of for a rookie to start in this kind of territory it was just my boss that was crazy enough to try to hire some rookies at this level of ground because even rookies on easier ground mm-hmm. this job has like a 50 percent dropout rate in the first week just across i mean the board. were you just exhausted every day at the end of the day or you were just like uh, no, Done. I was really? not really Energized? like I was. Yeah, like I was all right because wow. I don't know why I just got out there. And yeah. as soon as it's like it's an extremely independent job, it's extremely physically intensive. It is psychologically intensive more than anything, actually. Never have I been so alone with my thoughts. Wow. Yeah. And you're completely by yourself. You're working on your own piece of land and you're just like in the trees and you're just planting more trees <laughs> yeah. and you're just bagging up carrying all these heavy trees out and doing it all over again for in my case it was eight hours a day Ooh. now with my two friends that started at the same time as me they both did leave after seven days uh-huh. one of them because she found it incredibly unbearable the other one because he got <laughs> horrible heat stroke oh and no yeah i know like he probably could have stuck it out but the heat stroke drew the line yeah. for him which i completely understand yeah, yeah. so i stuck it out for the rest of the season and it actually went ridiculously well for me mm-hmm. i was looking for that one rare boss that was just gonna like try me out even though I had no experience and just have faith in me and he did and I succeeded immensely like after two weeks they're like you're not a trainee anymore and that is I I can't even begin to describe to you like how insanely difficult that was and how unlikely that is to have happened but to tie it back to what we were talking about (laughs) yeah can I ask like is there a reason why you felt so connected to the task of taking care of trees or being around trees does it have something to do with your ancestry i'm thinking it does because my last name trachenko all i know is that this name roughly like in ukrainian roughly translates to woodcutter to this particular woodcutting occupation in which somebody had to stand in a pit and use this handsaw and just be like shoveling huge trunks all day which is an incredibly repetitive laborious and just just Mm mind-numbing task and this is apparently what my family was good enough that this was our namesake Mm so the absurd degree to which i felt comfortable in the forest i eventually deduced was almost certainly due to the fact that I have some kind of, like, as you said, like blood tie to doing this kind of work. So I have a quick fun fact or side note. Do you know how our ancestors took down trees here in Turtle Island and these woodlands? Because we didn't have access until the fur trade. How did they do it? So you have to cover the base of the tree, like the trunk, with clay or mud. And then it's because you set the tree on fire. The part above where the clay is. The clay forms a barrier so that the surrounding, the land doesn't catch fire. You burn it, burn it, burn it until it gets really, like, it becomes weaker at the trunk. And then 
because everyone has a role or a job to do in indigenous societies to this day, you send the kids up to climb the tree <laughs> and they love it. You know, they just rock back and forth and till the trees, you know, pretty uh, unstable. And then the kids like lean way into one direction. And then once they know the kids know when the tree's going to fall, they can feel it. They run right down and then everyone pushes the tree over. And that's how we knock down trees. That's at least one way we did it around here in the woodlands. So it was a bit more time consuming and laborious, but yeah, that's how it was done. <laughs> That's fantastic. I'm so glad to have yeah. learned that. <laughs> I just think it's really cute, though. They send the kids up. <laughs> yeah, oh, my God. And that's what we had before swings. <laughs> <laughs> For the playground. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about what the powwow trail is? Sure. So every summer, really, it's when the snow melts and then in between when the snow melts and then when it falls again. In that time span, indigenous peoples, especially like in the native community between the U.S. and Canada, what are currently known as these settler states, will travel around in the summer and you go on powwow trail or some people call it powwow circuit. And you go from one powwow to another from as far south as San Antonio, Texas to as far north as like northern Saskatchewan. And you have these we have these huge celebrations and ceremony does happen at powwows or following powwows. But Usually it's just dancing, food, fry bread. Uh, there are honor songs, giveaways, things like that, and dance competitions. And old family and friends see each other like every year for decades. And people travel all over all summer long and they live out of their cars, stay with their friends and relatives they've known forever. And, and this is a thing that currently goes on. Oh, yeah. It's been happening for you know, in a sense, you know, we've always been doing this during the summertime, summer months. We've always been coming together and traveling around and things like that and having these huge celebrations and feasts and ceremonies. Okay. And, but, you, uh, and uh, have you encountered these people? Oh, yeah. I mean, any power, pretty much you'll encounter someone who's on the trail currently because not really? everyone's. Yeah. A lot of native peoples generally, we travel a lot. We just do. Even if you don't know how you're going to get somewhere or what you're going to do when you get there, you just get there and then you figure it out. I think that's definitely kind of universal among a lot of native peoples in the U.S. and Canada. Yeah. So something I'd like to hear your take on. I know I've heard very mixed reviews on whether it's worth it to be a nomad and constantly reintroduce yourself. Into oh, places. yeah. I mean, when I first left Dallas, I was like introducing myself all the time and I got used to it, you know. And then after a few years of moving into different neighborhoods, different cities, different countries, I was just like, I'm done. I'm so done. <laughs> like, I'm honestly so exhausted. And I'm really glad that I found Winnipeg, that I finally made it here, that it took, I know it took me like forever to finally get here, but I'm glad I got here finally because it's so beautiful. And I'm so glad I'm here in the land of my ancestors, my Anishinaabe Mitchif ancestors, because I think I want to settle down here more or less permanently. I definitely don't see myself living outside the Western Great Lakes because this is my homeland. But at the same time, I do feel torn between two continents. I feel a constant urge to go back to see not only the peoples who I come from in France, Romania, across Europe, really, not just my friends and loved ones out there, but the lands as well. Those lands call to me the same way that these lands call me here, about the same way, because my ancestors left Europe willingly. My ancestors didn't necessarily leave Ojibwe country, Métis country willingly. They were traveling around, and then before they knew it, a border was created that separated our peoples, our families, our nations, our homelands right in two. And it was, and I don't think my ancestors were expecting that at all. 
I don't think they understood what was happening with the colonial project, how massive and extensive it would be and and the effects it would have on future generations in terms of maintaining connection to community, to culture, to place. But yeah, so that's it's kind of different. Like being here in Winnipeg in San Boniface, speaking French, speaking Ojibwe Machif, practicing my indigenous cultures, like I'm not supposed to be doing that. I'm not supposed to be here. I'm not supposed to be identifying as indigenous. So all these things that I'm doing here in Minneapolis and Winnipeg especially, it's basically in spite of colonialism. I'm not supposed to be doing it, yet I am. It's a form of resistance. Well, that took a turn, sorry. <laughs> no worries. Colonization took a real strong stab at all of that in, in indigenous cultures, attacking the very structure of the family and community itself. So I would really love to hear your thoughts on this. Sure. To bring this back to language, the Ojibwe word for family or clan, we because we go by a clan system, it's our traditional form of governance. The word is totem, and I believe in Cree it's like totem or very similar. So this is related to the word for heart, they, like it's a particle meaning heart. And you hear it in the word for strawberry, which is odemen, heart-shaped berry. And you hear it in the word for drum, which I believe is odegan or something similar to that. And it's because the drum is at the center of everything. It's the heart of the village, of the community. And you see this at powwows because it, there's the drum and everyone is gathered around it, singing, backup singing. That's another way how language shows you like what is valued in a culture. And to us, family and community are extremely important. And during the fur trade, this began to break down when money and other trade goods were being introduced and in some ways that was good for us because we found value and usefulness in some of these trade goods such as scissors kettles pots cloths things like that but <laughs> indigenous men in particular were going off and acting as guides including some of my ancestors and they would take the europeans or settlers around and kind of show them where to go and things like that and provide them with pelts and such so that the fur trade could operate but because of this, the men were away for longer times than usual because the men were often hunting and gathering or like going outside the village and the women were in charge of the village area. And, but they'd come back sooner or later, but they're leaving for more extended periods of time. And in addition to that, women were disappearing as early as the fur trade era because of violence against indigenous women and kidnapping and such. And at the same time, elders were passing away. And so all of a sudden, you just have this kind of binary between the elders who are left and the kids who are left because a lot of the people in, in between, they're kind of, they're not around as much anymore. And the community is kind of breaking apart, I would say mostly due to causes because of colonization. Absolutely. Uh, a few more things you mentioned were pertinent to this discussion of maintaining community is the settler nuclear family and also architecture. In addition to what happened in the fur trade, there's a lot of, oh, I don't know if propaganda is the right word or something like that, but monogamous attitudes were very much forced onto indigenous peoples by the Canadian and American settler state. To this day, actually, it's very strictly monogamous. And whether or not you're religious, it's really interesting. And that tells you that it's not just about religion or tradition. It's about money. It's about capitalism. It's about having a family of two parents and then like 2.5 kids and producing such and such amounts of money, making sure that goes back into the system. One singular familial unit. Yes. One white picket fence family in one singular house with two cars. And 
Although that used to, of course, be one car. It's just really interesting because in indigenous societies, we are, of course, especially back in the day, non-monogamy was very common. What you might call ethical non-monogamy. Kim Talbert is an incredible assistant Wapatanoyate academic in Alberta, and she's written and spoken a lot about this. And it's really been detrimental to indigenous peoples to have to conform to something that is forced upon us that is so foreign. And it's not that we don't have or never had monogamous relationships. Some Ojibwe communities will have marriages where in ceremony you are married for all of eternity, not just when you die, but even after that your souls are connected forever. But at the same time, that doesn't necessarily mean that you can't have other types of partners in that marriage or that it can't include the community somehow or something like that. Of course, every community is different. Another way this ties into how we relate to others in general and in our communities is that before colonization, we lived in wigwams and here on the plains in teepees. And there aren't doors. You know, you have to get along. You can't fight because if you go outside in these winters, you die, you know? <laughs> uh, so it's really a matter of survival. You have to get along. And, you know, your parents will, you'll talk something out if it needs to be talked out. You'll have a sharing circle. And we still do that to this day. We have sharing circles. It's a really important tradition for us. And, you know, when you're a mad teenager, in 2019, living in a house or an apartment, what do you do? You run into you your lock room. yourself in your room. Yeah, you slam your door in your parents' face. But like you know, it, that would never happen because we didn't have doors. So yeah, is it such a good thing that we all live in separate rooms? Is it that actually necessary? Are there ways to kind of go back to that or make some kind of compromise amongst ourselves? Like how can we decolonize our houses or the way our communities are organized or city planning? because architecture and indigenous architecture is raising these questions in connection to traditional indigenous kinship networks, which are very extensive. And they're so extensive. And our, our worldviews and our, the way we understand and view family adoption, kinship, who we claim and as a family member and who we can take in as a family member or community member, it's so radically different than white settler understandings of community or of family. Like, we use the term a lot in white settler society. You hear always immediate family, first mm -hmm. cousin, second cousin, third mm -hmm. cousin. It's kind of different. Like in indigenous society, everyone's kind of just your cousin. <laughs> and, um, and even people you aren't related to can be your auntie. It's just like, oh, hey, auntie, you know. And I think it's similar even for non-indigenous black communities and communities of color. It's I've it's, heard of that in yeah, a few places. Definitely, especially when you're in a society where you're not necessarily valued or where you're marginalized because you kind of rely on each other in your community, even if you're not related. There is, at least for indigenous peoples, I know like you, there is a kind of a bond or a sense of we're the only two people in this classroom, the only two people on this bus, the only two people in this government building. Like we have to stick together even if we don't like each other. It's mm -hmm. kind of like that. And also because of that forgiveness is a huge thing in indigenous culture. So there's just always forgiveness like for everything. Not for everything, but we are very merciful for things that are forgivable yeah exactly <laughs> yeah wow so that I is something <laughs> no that is something i had never even considered was how decolonizing a home might look like so thank you so much as always for your incredible perspective and thank you so much for coming on the show like we said before you're welcome back anytime thank you so much this has been wake the f up on 101.5 umfm check us out on instagram wake the f up umfm and you'll see jack's instagram on there as well catch you next week